banking in 2015 and the leveraged loan market. This is Industry Focus. Hi Fools, financial analyst Michael Douglas here with our senior banking specialist John Maxfield from Portland. John, how is it going? It's going great. Happy New Year to you, Michael. Happy, happy New Year as well. It, it, you know, I feel like I'm a little bit late to the party. Uh, I just got back from vacation, so I've been wishing everyone a happy New Year. They've been kind of looking at me like, well, you know, it's, it's a few days into January now, Michael. That's getting old. But uh, I guess that's kind of how it goes. So, do you have any, any New Year's resolutions, John? It's horrible, but I, I, have, I haven't made any New Year's resolutions. Oh, man. Sorry to say. My, uh, my um, first one was to start swimming again, which is followed up by my second one, which is to find a way not to smell like chlorine. So that's kind of <laughs> on my to-do list. Uh, all right, so, so let's jump right in. Uh, bank investing in 2015. Let's, let's just break this down. What are the major things that people should be looking for in banks this year? So 2015 is really you know, not unlike any other year. Right. There's a tendency, you know, when you're, when you're crossing over from one year to another, to say, you know, these are the things that, that you should be looking out for for, you know, this particular subset of stocks this upcoming year. Um, but really, right, the calendar is just somewhat of an artificial demarcation point that's switching over from one, one year to another. So it doesn't change the fundamental dynamics of banking. So it's just, it's just really the same thing that we've been talking about, Michael, over the last few months. It's about finding you know, the best banks who are really good at managing credit, who run efficient operations, who treat their employees and their customers well, and you know, presuming that they trade for a reasonable multiple, which a lot of them don't right now. Uh, but if you can pick them up at a reasonable multiple, those things will, 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 will or at least should result in um, superior returns relative at least to the industry. Right. So people are going to want to be looking really closely at that efficiency ratio. Um, and then also um, at more broadly, and, and it's, it's kind of a squishier concept a little bit, right? This sort of um, uh, a good credit lending culture. Um, you know, how, 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 do you, how do you approach figuring out what that looks like? Is it through the lens of the efficiency ratio? Because I assume that's your starting point. And then, and then sort of how do you look at that sort of squishier topic? So what I would recommend is this. If you're even remotely considering investing in a bank, what you need to know is how well their asset portfolio has a tendency to hold up during downturns in the credit cycle. And really the only way you can figure this out is by looking historically at how um, their, these asset portfolios have performed in the past. And obviously the most recent experience and one of the worst experiences we've had over the last century for that matter um, happened in 2008 and 2009. So what I would recommend to investors is that look, you go back to 2008, 2009, look at how that asset, that asset portfolio at you know, this prospective bank that you're looking at performed. If it did poorly, and, and the measures you're going to want to look at are things like net charge off ratio, the non-performing loan ratio, mm -hmm. things like that. There's a whole bunch of credit metrics that you can look at. Um, you can look at your, the, the percent of revenue that is being consumed by provision for loan losses, a whole bunch of different things. But the point being, how that asset portfolio performed or, and is expected to perform in future cycles will dictate the underlying returns of a bank. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. I think that's, uh, I think that's some pretty good solid advice. Uh, of course, the issue is that the better banks do tend to trade at higher multiples. So uh, I'm assuming you don't really see any particular value options there among sort of the better ones, the Wells Fargo's of the world. Yeah, so, so I guess two points. So to follow up, I guess, on what I was saying just a second ago, 
there is no guarantee that the way a bank will perform in the next cycle is tied to the way that it performed in the last cycle. However, that is the best piece of evidence that we have right. when it comes to how they manage credit risk. Right. So there's no guarantee that that's the best that we have. So yeah. In terms of the really good banks that are you know that do well at managing credit risk, you know you have your Wells Fargo's, your U.S. Bank, uh, your M&T Bank Corp, New York Community Bank Corp. All of these banks trade for high multiples to book value, and that is to be expected, right? If you're buying a Mercedes, right, to use an analogy, you're going to pay more for that car than if you're buying, say, a Honda Civic, right? So you have to expect to pay more for these stocks, but you're going to get a larger return from them over the very long run. Now, that is not to say that you should go out and be spending two and a half, three times book value on a stock like U.S. Bancorp, even though it's an excellent bank. What we found is that if you look at past returns, really the only way to beat the S&P 500 by investing in bank stocks is to buy them when they are cheap. So let's say you can pick up the U.S. Bancorp at say a one times book value or a 1.25 times book value or somewhere like that, if you can do that, you're going to do really, really well over the long term. Right. All right. Makes sense. And, and actually, I'm glad that you mentioned um, a, uh, a metaphor, an analogy, because you know another analogy that you've been uh, talking with me about a little bit has been this idea of sort of banks sort of being like airlines. So let's talk about that a little bit, because these are two very, very different um, very different industries, and I, I think people will be curious to see sort of how you're comparing these two to each other. If you go back and you look at the airline industry, right, what's that famous Warren Buffett quote that it, it, the airline industry, in aggregate, hasn't made money since the Wright brothers invented the airplane for the most part, right? <laughs> Which sounds a little bit like so, what some people have said about the banking industry, right? That's exactly right. Nassim Tlaib has said that basically that exact same thing about the bank industry. And let's be clear, right? Finding the data that can conclusively back this up one way or the other for either the airline industry or the bank industry is impossible. I, I personally think that it is impossible. I've spent a number of hours looking for this data. However, the mere fact that it's even a topic of conversation would suggest that it's probably in that gray zone where, you, as a general rule, um, it's not a very. Uh, neither of these industries are very profitable over the long run. One of the problems with the airline industry that we've seen over the last few cycles is that you know you have Southwest Airlines come in and they're a disruptor, right? And they disrupt by using a very low-cost model, which allows them to charge their customers less for plane tickets. And plane tickets nowadays are a commodity, right? So if you're the low-cost producer and if you can you can price your tickets at the lowest level, well, you're going to get you're going to suck up a lot of that good volume from the industry. And, and we're seeing that. I mean, like, you, how many airlines have gone bankrupt over the last decade? I mean, all, almost all the major ones. Well, we see a similar dynamic in the bank industry in that the really low-cost producers, so you have, so, let me back up for a second. You can think about banks somewhat like retail companies or a company that sells anything. Banks sell loans, and mm -hmm. the price of a loan is the interest rate. So a bank that can sell a loan at the lowest price, i.e. interest rate, is going to suck up a lot of the good volume in the industry. And that's exactly what we're seeing with the Wells Fargo's, the U.S. Bank Corps, banks like that that are able to operate really efficiently. And that's so you have your efficiency ratio south of 60 percent. And in some cases, you can even get them south of 50 percent. Um, they're able to write these loans at really low interest rates relative to, to their competitors. And what that means is that they can go out and get the top-notch commercial and industrial loans in the market right now, and that leaves kind of all the slop, if you will, 
for your Bank of Americas, your Citigroups, all these other larger banks that aren't as efficient and aren't able to compete on the loan prices um, to the same extent that U.S. Bank Corp and M&T Bank, uh, New York Community Bank Corp, um, and Wells Fargo are able to do. And so it's that dynamic, that low-cost producer dynamic in an industry where you're selling commodity, i.e. money, um, has a tendency to really bifurcate those good, those few good low-cost producers from kind of the rest of the pack. Yeah, well, and of course, there are going to be some differences in the airlines, though, right? Because I mean, when you look at like a, a Frontier, for example, I've flown Frontier recently, and, 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 and you know, you get charged for a lot of different things that maybe some of those other carriers aren't going to charge you for. So the sort of actual cost beyond that sort of ticket price is going to be a little bit different. Whereas with a loan, you know, if you're able to get, you know, a 10-year loan at one bank, right, for, uh, let's say, 6% APR, and then another bank, you're getting a 10-year loan for a 5% APR, um, those loans are essentially the same, assuming that they're the same size. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think the analogy works perfectly, but I think that there's a, a, definite, uh, a definite connection there in terms of low-cost providers really um, providing um, a, a disruptive opportunity for people. What I would say about that, though, Michael, is that, you know, when you look at buying an airplane ticket and you have all these ancillary uh, costs associated with it. So, you know, your original cost may be very different than what it, what, what it eventually turns out to be when you add in, maybe you upgrade, maybe you buy a meal. Um, Amounts know, of leg bags. room, stuff like that. That's exactly, you actually like, have some leg room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe they'll just start with making a stand pretty soon, right? <laughs> but, there's, a, um, there's a thought. In, in the banking industry, you can't just, it's important to not just look at, you know, a single loan. You have to look at the relationship in general as well. Because a lot of these banks are able to, you know, make loans or get, the, get deposit accounts and then build out that relationship. Mm -hmm. And when you're building out that relationship, there are, just like in the airline industry, innumerable ancillary costs. And again, if you, you know, to the consumer, right, you have overdraft fees, right. just a whole, sort, a whole assortment of fees that, you know, bank consumers have unfortunately become too familiar with over the last few years. Um, so when you look at it in aggregate, in an aggregate relationship, it really isn't that different from the airlines when you're considering uh, this dynamic where you have kind of the entry-level fee and then the ancillary fees on top of that. All right, fair enough. All right, so, so let's, let's turn then to the leveraged loan market, our, our final topic for today. Um, you know, it, it has been common wisdom, common sense, um, that uh, the Fed's going to raise short-term rates uh, for, for a little while now. Um, and of course, that could impact a number of stocks that we cover here in the financial space. But, but first off, let's, let's back off one from that and just explain why exactly is the Fed potentially looking at raising short-term interest rates? Sure. So if you go back to the financial crisis, you know, what we see is that when the credit markets go through a situation where they're seizing up, one of the things that the Federal Reserve can do is they can lower those short-term interest rates, which will boost, theoretically, will boost borrowing and or, uh, produce, or excuse me, boost lending. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the opposite side of that, obviously, is borrowing. But by boosting borrowing and lending, you're going to theoretically boost the economy. Well, the problem is that you know you can only do that for so long before it theoretically triggers inflation, and the fear is that, and you know we have seen absolutely zero evidence of inflation thus far, and that's the reason the interest rates have stayed so low. But the fear is that at a certain point, that inflation is going to be is going to be triggered by these ultra low interest rates, and so the the thought process is that we're kind of now in that area where we've seen unemployment uh, come way 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 down, right? It's now under six percent. Inflation is still kind of holding steady uh, down in, in between one and two percent, 
Um, but the Fed wants to stay out in front of that, and the way they do that is they'll boost up those short-term interest rates. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it definitely, definitely makes sense. And so then when we're thinking about these short-term interest rates, who do you see as being you know, most potentially impacted? At the beginning of last week, I had a conversation with a president of one of the largest, I think it is actually the largest business development company. And what business development companies do is, is they hold, for the most part, they hold the loans, they invest in loans that come out of leveraged buyout transactions. So this is, you know, you have a company that's going to buy another company, and what they do is they leverage the, you know, the purchasee's company's assets up by bank loans or bonds, um, you know, junk bonds, things like that. Well, BDCs will come in and they'll buy those loans in the middle there that are actually really, really risky that come out as a part of these leveraged buyout transactions. And he was telling me, he's like, look, the, the dynamic right now in the BDC market is really good because we're going to see interest rates tick up. But all the BDCs, their loan portfolios to these leveraged um, vehicles, these leveraged companies, um, they're all indexed to interest rates. So the theory is that, like, oh, well, the BDCs are going to be protected because as interest rates go up, you know, their, their portfolio will just go right. up. Well, the problem is that a lot of these companies that these leveraged loans have been placed upon don't have a lot of wiggle room when it comes to if interest rates go up because they're already, their interest payments are already so large. So the, and we've seen this many times in past cycles. When, when these interest rates go up, they will tip a number of these, leveraged trans, these, these highly leveraged companies into bankruptcy. If they tip those into bankruptcy, well, then that will kind of come back in to the BDC market um, and banking market and things like that. And it's for that reason that the federal regulators, the, the federal bank regulators, have been really stringent on banks over the past six months about cleaning up their leveraged loan exposure. Yeah, uh, certainly, certainly a, uh, an issue we'll want to be watching very closely moving forward. Uh, John, as always, thanks for your, your time. Uh, folks, check back to fool.com and, of course, the uh, industry focus. Uh, podcast for all of your uh, financial and investing needs. After all, we are where the money is. Um, thanks much and full on.